Good morning again. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus 25 will be our sermon text for this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some Bibles just outside the door on the tables there. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, you should feel free not only to take one of those for the service, but take it, write your name in the front, take it home with you, and then uh, bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Before we read Leviticus 25, let's pray together. Our Father, we, uh, we thank you for the hope of dwelling with you forever in your land and of seeing your glory. We pray, Father, that you would increase that desire in us, even as we look at Leviticus 25, that we would have a hope, a longing for that day, and that that longing would shape the way we think about the here and now. Be with, us, be with us this morning, guide our thoughts, guide my words by your Spirit, that they would be true to your Word. Help us to hear uh, what is of you, and what is true and good and right, and to forget all else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read Leviticus 25. If you've been here with us for any amount of time, you know that we've been working through Leviticus. If you're joining us for the first time... You're coming in at the tail end. So we're Leviticus 25, then 26, 27, and then we're, we're moving on. But uh, So Leviticus 25 this morning. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself, and for your male and female slaves, and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you. And for your cattle, and for the wild animals that are in your land, all its yield shall be for food. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property and if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price, and if the years are few, you shall reduce the price, for it is the number of the crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Therefore you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely." 
The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, What shall we eat in the seventh year, if we may not sow or gather in our crop? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year, when its crop arrives. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the country you possess you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the number of let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee it shall be released and he shall return to his property. If a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, he may redeem it within a year of its sale. For a full year he shall have the right of redemption. If it is not redeemed within a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong in perpetuity to the buyer throughout his generations. It shall not be released in the Jubilee. But the houses of the villages that have no wall around them shall be classified with the fields of the land. They may be redeemed, and they shall be released in the Jubilee. As for the cities of the Levites, the Levites may redeem at any time the houses in the cities they possess. And if one of the Levites exercises his right of redemption, then the house that was sold in a city they possess shall be released in the Jubilee. For the houses in the cities of the Levites are their possession among the people of Israel. But the fields of pasture land belonging to their cities may not be sold, for that is their possession forever. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money or interest at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him a sl serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. As for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you, who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him, or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. He shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he sold himself to him until the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall vary with the number of years. 
the time he was with his owner shall be rated as the time of a hired worker. If there are still many years left, he shall pay proportionately for his redemption some of his sale price. If there remain but a few years until the year of Jubilee, he shall calculate and pay for his redemption in proportion to his years of service. He shall treat him as a worker hired year by year. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed by these means, then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of Jubilee. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I want you to think this morning about the difference between being a refugee and being a guest. You know, living in a, a refugee camp can't be a comfortable thing. I imagine sometimes, and have read uh, newspaper articles to this effect, that sometimes people get territorial. They stake their claim on their tent, on their little piece of the camp. In fact, uh, it, it may even become like, like gangs in an inner city. You know, each gang marking their territory, fighting over every city block for control. That's very different from being a guest in someone's home. When you're a guest in someone's home, you don't own anything. You don't control. But that's okay, right? You're a visitor. You are a guest in someone else's home. You know, the gang member always has to be vigilant. He can never let his guard down. He, uh, a guest, however, can rest, relax and enjoy the hospitality of his host. One seeks to control and is restless. The other controls nothing, owns nothing, but enjoys rest. You know, we live in a world that is not the way it's supposed to be, a world of inequity, a world of poverty and homelessness and even slavery. And often we feel like even we in uh, this country who have many more freedoms than others, we often feel like we are under someone else's thumb. Like we are not yet the the king of our own castle, right? Uh, Even in our homes, right? Uh, The the bank or our bills or our boss are really the ones in control. We don't feel like we can rest even in our own home because there's always someone else we have to answer to. And that bothers us because we're thinking like gang members and not like guests. We're looking at Leviticus 25 this morning, and uh, it's about the year of Jubilee, where God encourages his people to to think like guests and not gang members. He encourages us to live in constant dependence on the hospitality of our Father, and to show that same hospitality to people around us. You can see uh, the outline for the sermon this morning. It's on the back of the bulletin. There are two main parts. Part one, the story that Jubilee tells. And part two, finding your place in that story. So first, part one. The story that Jubilee tells in the, in the year of Jubilee. You know, Leviticus 25 can actually be summarized fairly simply. Back in Leviticus 23, we saw a number of holy days, right? Special times of rest from the ordinary for drawing near to God our Father. And built into that in chapter 23, we we saw what we might call a Sabbath principle, right? Where every seventh day was a day of rest. 
And then there were seven additional days of rest throughout the year. And many of those days, many of those seven days were on days that were multiples of seven. So it was on the seventh day or the 14th day or the 49th day or even multiples of seven plus one. So eight or 15 or 50. Well, this chapter, Leviticus 25, continues sort of the implementation of this Sabbath principle, but beyond the annual cycle, right? So we have a Sabbath year every seven years. Every seventh year, Israel was not to sow or to reap. Now, can you imagine a whole year where you don't do the main work that you normally do? How would you survive? (laughs) A whole year. Well, God promises that Israel would survive uh, in verses 20 to 22 because he would give them a a bumper crop in the sixth year, a a crop so big it would last until they harvested the crops from year number eight. So every seventh year, Israel got a sabbatical. God promised to care for his people, to provide for his guests in that year. After seven weeks of years, right, seven sets of seven, Israel was to consecrate, to set apart year 50 as the year of Jubilee. So verse 10 says this, And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a Jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. Now this, by the way, Leviticus 25.10, that's the verse that's on the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia. Uh, Some of you may may know that, may have seen that before. Leviticus 25.10, proclaim liberty throughout the land. The remainder of these two chapters, though, simply explains this liberty. It, it, It begins to work out, to spell out the liberty. And there are really two main parts to it. Both of them have to do with poverty. You know, you know, what happens in our day when your business doesn't go well, you, you lose all your money, and you find yourself deep in debt? Well, Israel had, uh, had a couple of options. They didn't have credit cards, right? So they couldn't just keep charging. They had to do something. And so their first option was to sell their property, sell their property in order to pay off their debts. And then if you were still in debt, uh, you, if you sold your property, but that wasn't enough, you would sell yourself. You would sell yourself into servitude, into slavery. So you could sell your property, but if that wasn't enough, you would sell yourself into slavery. Now, in order to understand how this worked in Israel, we have to grasp the Jubilee. In the year of Jubilee, anyone who had sold their land any time in the previous 50 years got their land back. And anyone who sold themselves into servitude over the previous 50 years, they got their freedom back. And what this meant was when you sold your land or sold yourself, uh, you weren't really selling your land or selling yourself. Uh, You were selling the crops, the produce of the land for a number of years. And you were selling your work, your service for a certain number of years. So that number of years was determined uh, by the number of years between now and the next Jubilee. It might be 49 years, if it was earlier on in that cycle. It might be three years, depending on where you are in the cycle. The number of years, then, that are left in that cycle determines the price, right? You saw that in verse 16. Verse 16 says, if the years are many, if you're selling your land, if the years are many before the year of Jubilee, you shall increase the price, and if the years are few, you shall reduce the price, for it is the number of the crops that he is selling you. 
We saw the same thing at the end of the chapter about selling your service, right? You're selling your service as a hired worker for that number of years. Now, if a person came into money and they were able to buy back their land or buy back their freedom, they, they could do that. If they found money to redeem themselves, to redeem their land, they could do that at any time during that 50-year cycle. Otherwise, they regained their land, they regained their freedom in the year of Jubilee. By the way, this was proclaimed on the 10th day of the seventh month, which happens to be the Day of Atonement. And so their freedom, their release was tied up with that annual sacrifice on the Day of Atonement where their sins were forgiven. So every 50th year was like a reset button in Israel. And the reason was clear enough, right? Verse 23 says the land could not be sold in perpetuity, that is, couldn't be sold forever because the land belongs to God. Verses 42 and 55 tell us that the people of Israel could not be sold as slaves because they were God's servants already. God has won, had won his people their freedom in the Exodus. He brought them out of slavery in Egypt. God had established them in the promised land, and he wanted his people to continue to enjoy the fruits of his work. And so every 50th year, no matter how much you had screwed up, right, God hit the reset button and restored your land and your freedom. Now I want to back up for a minute and see kind of the larger picture that this idea fits into in the context of our just everyday human experience. The, the year of Jubilee was about physical property, which led to physical slavery and physically having to leave your land. The Jubilee was about physical release and return, return to your home. But there's a larger story, right? There's a larger story in the, in the scriptures of, of slavery, of exile, of release and return. And if you've been here for any amount of time, you, you probably know where I'm going, right? Because I'm always talking about Genesis 1 through 3. And I'm always talking about Genesis 1 through 3 because all of history and human experience flows out of those chapters. And so in Genesis 2, God took his people, he put them in the land, in the Garden of Eden. He gave them a home. They had everything that they needed. They were rich in, in food and in fellowship and in enjoyment of God in the garden. All of creation served them under God. They were guests in God's good world. But pretty soon, Adam and Eve began to act more like gang members than guests, and they began to lay claim to things in the garden that God hadn't given to them. They claimed territory that was not theirs to claim. And in rejecting the, the landowner, the tenant was removed from the land, right? In, in, by insulting their hosts, the guests had to leave the party. And Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. They were kicked out of their home. Now, to be a guest is to have rest in the home of another, but to be, to be a gang member, right, is to, to be a slave to the laws of the street, to have to stake out my territory and defend it at all costs. If I want it, I have to take it. Oh, and by the way, I have to compete with you for it because we're all fighting over the same little piece of turf. And in refusing to serve their master, uh, Adam and Eve became slaves of the desires of their own heart in competition with others, right, for the limited resources of this world. And this is actually uh, really the, the common experience of humanity. We are estranged from God 
living life on the streets of the world, so to speak, enslaved to the desires of our hearts, always competing to satisfy our hungry souls. When we turn to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah sees a different day coming. Isaiah sees a day when one will come to those living on the streets and he will bring good news to the poor and bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the captives and open the prison of those who are bound. He will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's the year of Jubilee, the year of God's grace. And Jesus comes and in Luke 4, which we read earlier, he reads these verses in Isaiah. He reads these verses about release and about good news and about binding up the brokenhearted and proclaiming liberty. And Jesus reads those verses in Isaiah and then he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is the one who comes to, to bring the jubilee, to bring liberty and freedom and rest. Like the close relative in verse 48, Jesus came to redeem us out of our slavery, to purchase our freedom from sin and from exile out of God's presence. He came to, to restore us to our home. Like that, like that sacrificial lamb on the Day of Atonement, right? Jesus marks the release for God's people and the return to God's family. Jesus lived, of course, a perfect life. He was always obedient to the Father, and so he deserved a life of blessing in the Father's presence. But Jesus didn't receive that life of blessing. He, he received a life of subjection to the power of sin and homelessness. And Jesus gave up the very things we strive after, didn't he? He gave up ease and personal freedom and trying to claim a plot of land for himself. He, he didn't have a home. Or as he puts it, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus was dependent upon the hospitality of others throughout his ministry. Uh, figure that, right? The Son of God dependent on the hospitality of men. Jesus was banished from the Father's presence on the cross. And in his death, he comes under the full weight and power of sin. Jesus was then, then experienced the ultimate exile from the land in his death. And he goes into the grave and is buried. But of course, that's not the end of the story for Jesus. He goes to the cross. He experiences that exile. He goes into the grave. But in the Jubilee, right, slavery and exile are always followed by release and return. So the Father raises Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the power of sin. And he brings him up into heaven and he seats him at his right hand and he gives Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus gives the Father, or the Father gives Jesus the land. Not just a little piece here or there, right? Not just this or that city block, not just this house with a white picket fence, no, but all of it. The Father gives Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth. See, Jesus, though he willingly submitted to the deadly power of sin and willingly was exiled from the land, Jesus was freed from sin's power and restored to ownership of the whole earth. Jesus has experienced the fullness of jubilee for his people, release and return and rest in the land, authority over the whole earth. And the question is, what does that mean for us? Well, here's the short answer. The short answer is Jesus left heaven as a refugee that we might live as guests in the Father's home. 
But let's spell that out a little bit more in part two, finding your place in the story. You know, we live in a place uh, where we, we never quite seem to have enough. Uh, something always seems to be missing. We, we live in a place where we're driven, right? We're driven by our desires, uh, by the standards of others, by the market, right? Whatever it is, by our boss at work or our parents at home or our teachers at school. For, for many of us, we never really feel like we can rest. We never really feel at home. You know, the monthly mortgage or the rent payment reminds us that, that we can't quite claim full claim to this plot of ground that we call home. We feel like refugees or, or gang members, right, trying to stake our claim on life, but someone always seems to get there first. We're always frustrated. We don't live in Eden. Right? Life is not paradise. If it is, just give it a minute. What is our response? Right? What is our response when, when, when to life as we know it? You know, we often look around. We look around at our poverty, whether that's financial or relational or physical, whatever it is, right? We look, we look around at the, our estrangement from God and others. We look at our addictions and compulsions and our weariness. Uh, we look at all that the world has to offer that we want but don't have. And we say, you know, th this world is not giving me what I want. And we have options, right? One option is we, we can just despair. We can just give up. We can roll over and play dead, right? I'm done. I can't do this anymore. But I think there's something inside of us that, that tells most of us, don't give up. Right? Don't give up. Don't, don't roll over and play dead. And so we do the opposite. We dig in our heels, which really isn't much better. We, we say, this world isn't giving me what I want, but doggone it, I'm going to get it. I can do this, right? I can fight this. And so we strive to get from the world what we feel in our hearts we don't have. We begin with the word mine, right? Uh, parents of young kids know that this is, this, is a, this is a favorite word in their homes. Uh, see, our tendency is to stake our claim to our little bit of earth and hold on to it with all our might. And so we, we shout out mine, right? This is mine. And, uh, you know, our kids learn that, you know, two years old. At least my son has learned it at two years old, right? He knows Maya's, right? That's what he calls himself, Maya. He says, Maya's, this is Maya's. Doesn't matter what it is in our home. Doesn't matter who it belongs to, it's Maya's. We want our piece of the pie, right? And so we claim it as our own. We look around at others, right? Somebody else has something that we want and we're jealous. Could be anything, right? Could be a toy if you're two years old. Could be a seat in a classroom, could be a boyfriend or a girlfriend, could be a job, or it could be a reputation, the glory, fame. We want it. And so either out loud or in our hearts, we say, hands off, that's mine. I want that. We live with this mindset of scarcity, right, that there's not enough to go around, so I've got to stake my claim and get what I want. This is life as an exile, right, life as a refugee from Eden with this gang member mentality, where we're trying to, to lay claim, to stake out our territory. We look to the world as our home, and so a place where all of our hopes, we place all of our hopes and dreams in the here and now, and we fight to realize them. But the life of a refugee is never life to its fullest until they find a home. The disappointments of life tend to lead either to despair on the one hand or to digging in our heels on the other. But if we live with a mindset, not of scarcity and disappointment, but of jubilee, 
especially the jubilee that Christ entered into on our behalf, things will be different. See, Christ became a refugee that we might have a place in the Father's house. Now we can live trusting in the hospitality of our Father rather than staking claim on the streets. If we live not as gang members but as guests, how would that shape the way we think, the way we live, the way we love? Well, let me point out just three things. The first is uh, life is on loan. Right? The, the, the reason the land was not to be sold in perpetuity, not to be sold forever, was, uh, according to verse 23, that the land belonged to God. The land was not Israel's. It was God's land. And what that means is, it's really true for all of us, what we own is not ours. The world is not ours. It's his, right? God made it. God has the copyright. God's the supreme king. He has the rights of eminent domain, right? We're, we're, we are not even our own. God created us. And as in the Exodus, so through the cross, God has redeemed us as well. We were purchased by the blood of Jesus, if you trust in Jesus. Now, God has stewarded specific things to specific people, no doubt, right? So in that sense, what you own is your own. It's not somebody else's. You alone are responsible to use well what God has gifted to you. But how might it reshape our thinking if we remember that everything we have and everything we are does not belong to us but to Him? Our property, our homes, our, our cars and our coffee makers, right? Our clothes, our computers, our kids even, our pets. Everything we have is His. We are guests in His home. He just happens to be letting us use His stuff at the moment. And do you, do you realize that life is simply on loan from God? We don't own anything, verse 23 says. We are strangers and sojourners with God in our homes. Now, a simple test, right, to see whether uh, you realize that life is on loan or whether you have staked out your claim on God's stuff is to ask yourself two questions. First question is this. When I want something, but I don't get it, Am I angry? Am I upset? Or take that further, right? If, if, if someone else gets it, am I jealous? Right? Do I despise them? When I want something but don't get it, and especially when someone else does, what is the knee-jerk reaction of my heart? If it's anger, frustration, or even depression, what that shows is I've staked out my claim on God's stuff and I'm demanding it from Him. And I'm upset that he hasn't coughed it up. If I'm angry, what I'm saying is that God, God, you should have given this to me. But does not God have a right to do with his stuff as he wishes? The second question to ask is, is when I have something and lose it, how do I respond? You know, maybe it was used up, maybe it breaks, maybe it was stolen, maybe it was lost. What's the knee-jerk reaction of my heart? Samuel Rutherford uh, was a pastor some time ago. In fact, I noticed this morning he, he wrote, uh, The Sands of Time Are Sinking, says words by Anne Cousin based on Samuel Rutherford's letter, right? So he wrote the letter that this song was based on that we sung earlier. He, he wrote a lot of letters. In fact, uh, he wrote uh, one letter to a grieving woman who had lost her daughter. And his letter said this, 
Remember, this is like 1650s, sometime around there. He said, remember of what age your daughter was, and that just so long was your lease of her. God had leased, lent the daughter to the woman. He goes on. If she were 18, 19, or 20 years old, I know not, but sure I am, seeing her term was come, and your lease run out, you can no more justly quarrel against your great superior for taking his own at his just term day than a poor farmer can complain that his master takes a portion of his own land to himself when his lease is expired. Rutherford goes on to say, Indeed, that long loan of such a good daughter, an heir of grace, a member of Christ, deserves more thanks at your creditor's hand than that you should murmur when he craves but his own. Whoa. You know, what does the word mine mean in your vocabulary? Does it mean this belongs to me and me only hands off God? Right? Gang member thinking. Or does it mean God has gifted me with this to steward for a period of time how long I know not? I'm a guest in his home and he's letting me use his stuff. What difference will it make to think of yourself as a steward and not an owner, as a guest and not a gang member? Since God is the real owner of all, if, if we are living in constant, uh, we are to live life in constant dependence on the hospitality of our Father. We don't like that. I don't like that because it makes us vulnerable. Right? We, we don't want to live in dependence on the hospitality of another. We want to be the landowner. We want to be the host, not the guest, because then we're in control. But that's just not the way it is. Right? Christ came, had no other place to lay his head. He was dependent upon the hospitality of others, dependent upon the hospitality of his Father, and we must live life in constant dependence on the hospitality of our Father as well. Life is on loan. Second implication of Jubilee, upward and forward. If this world is not our home, if this world is simply on loan, if we, as verse 23 says, uh, are strangers and sojourners with God here, where do we look for stability, right? for rest, for fulfillment? Where do we look when the disappointments of life come? If we're not going to despair, if we're not going to simply dig in our heels and fight, if we're not going to start laying claim to life, where do we look? And the answer is we look upward and forward. You know, Jesus came and he experienced the, the exile, the estrangement, the ho homelessness and the poverty, the weariness of this life. And then Jesus on the cross submitted to the power of sin. He went to the grave after suffering the rejection of the Father and exile from the land of the living. But the Father didn't leave him there. Jesus rose, receiving life and freedom. Jesus ascended, receiving authority over the land. Jesus has received the, the fullness of life for which we long. You won't find the fullness of life as a spiritual refugee here. You won't find fullness of life by clinging to this world. We find fullness of life there, where Christ is at the right hand of the Father. And what Scripture says is, is, it, is that we are there with Him. You know, Paul in Colossians puts it like this. In Colossians 3, 1 through 4, he says, 
If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. See, do you, do you want to know where your fullness of life is? It's there, at the right hand of the Father in Christ. That's where your fullness is. Your fullness of life is seated at the right hand of the Father. Set your mind on Christ. And as we do that, we will begin to know, experientially, internally, the fullness of life God, God has for us in our fellowship with the Father through Christ, in our be, being united to our Savior, to the Messiah. But notice, it's, it's not, just, not just looking upward, but it's also looking forward. Colossians 3, verse 4, again, it says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. See, there's this future component to our fullness of life. And I, I can't help but think that this is what the Jubilee was meant to foster. Now think about it. Every 50 years, there's this release, right? So Israel would have been constantly looking forward. And as life went on, the deeper you got, the more you looked forward, the more you longed for that year, the more trouble you experienced, the more land you had to sell, you know, once you're selling yourself into servitude, right, you're longing for that year of release. The, the uh, sermon this morning is titled The, the Year of Jubilee, and I, I thought about just titling it Jubilee, uh, but I realized, no, that, that's all wrong. That's all wrong because this is about a temporal reality. Jubilee doesn't just float in space somewhere, right? Yeah, jubilee, freedom, liberty, right? No, it's, it's not an ideal. It, it's a moment. It's a time. It's the year of jubilee, right? Just like on the third day, Christ rose from the dead. It's a moment in time that jubilee broke through. On the third day or on the day of the Lord, right, Jesus will return, and make all things new. It's a time that we're longing for. Christianity is not simply about working certain ideals into your philosophy of life so you can live differently. Right? It's about looking back to the day of the resurrection and looking forward to the day of Jesus' return, hoping in the year of Jubilee. Where are your eyes placed? Where do you look for pleasure? for comfort? Uh, what do you look to as your own little return to Eden? Where is your longing? Look up where Christ is seated. Look forward to Christ's return. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear. You will appear. That's what Paul says in Colossians. You will appear. You will appear. Your life, your fullness, will appear with him in glory. To change the metaphor that we've been using a little bit, right? Rather than laying claim like a squatter, right? We need to keep our eyes looking forward like a pilgrim. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's our hope. That's our longing. That's our fullness of life. Life is on loan here. Upward and forward is where we should be looking. Third, as though a stranger. Now, one of the most profound phrases in this chapter is uh, chapter 25, verse 35, which says this. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. 
It's actually a really odd phrase. Um, Moses is describing the first defense against poverty, right? Selling yourself, as you might imagine, that was, that was a last resort, right? So, uh, but you could sell your land. The problem is once you sell your land, you're homeless. So how do you live? Leviticus 25, 35 tells us, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Right? So uh, if your brother becomes poor, he sold his land, you, you, you were to take him in. He lived with you. He became your guest. You might have charged him for food, but you wouldn't make a profit off of it, we're told. You, you could even give him a loan, but uh, you couldn't charge him interest. You didn't do those things. What were you to do? You were to support him as though he were a, a, a stranger, as though he were a stranger and a sojourner. Th this really may be one of the oddest phrases in Leviticus, believe it or not. I know there's been a lot of odd phrases in Leviticus, but this is one of the oddest. You know, the, the phrase love your neighbor as yourself back in Leviticus 19, that makes sense, right? Because we all love ourselves, right? I mean, if we're honest, we know that. And uh, we, we are to take care of others the way we take care of ourselves. Okay, love your neighbor as yourself. That makes sense. I get it. But this passage says something different. It, it, it is as if it said, love your brother as a stranger. Is that weird to anybody else? Right? That, that just seems weird to me. I don't know. Maybe it's me. But it's, it's like saying, you love the stranger, right? Well, love your brother the same way. But do we love the stranger? <laughs> Right? Uh, we, we treat often the poor and the alien and the stranger and the sojourner with contempt, right? as if they're below us. Uh, when people aren't from around here, right, we get suspicious of them. And the passage seems to assume that we treat the stranger and sojourner well. Why would it do that? Well, Leviticus 19 tells us, actually. Back in 19, uh, verses 33 to 34, says this. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. See, the impetus for treating the stranger well is that we were all once strangers. And God treated us well. We treat the, the poor and the alien and the stranger and the sojourner with contempt as if they were below us because we forget that that is who we all are. We treat others poorly because we forget that we're no different from them. We look down on the poor. We say it's their fault, right? They got themselves into this mess, right? It's their job to get themselves out. We, we treat other sinners with disdain. We think, how could they do that? How could they live like that? How could they act like that? We say this because we have somehow forgotten that Jesus must daily forgive the stubborn, sinful, stupid mess of our own hearts. We, we are like guests who have robbed our host and then look down on his other guests but then he forgives us and spreads a table for us anyway. When your brother becomes poor, love him like the sojourner because you ought to love the sojourner the way God has loved you. It all comes down to remembering the story and your place in it. This is how this part of Leviticus 25 ends, that little portion pointing us back to the story. 
uh, beginning again in Leviticus 25:35, it says, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food at profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Just in case you forgot, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Remember that. Let that shape the way that you treat those around you. Well, Jesus has entered into the year of Jubilee in his resurrection, right? He has uh, entered in to the fullness that God has. And he offers each of us a chance to enter in with him, to have the hope of a home in heaven above and in heaven to come. So we don't have to, to fight for a home here and now. Rather, we can live as guests in the Father's house, trusting in the Father's hospitality and, and loving the sojourner and the stranger, the poor and the needy, the tempted and the sinful, the refugee and the gang member, because you are right there where they are. The only difference is the grace of God in Christ his love for us. Rest in the Father's home that's come through Christ. Trust in Him. And then you too will be a part of the story of the year of Jubilee. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we pray that you would help us to grasp all that Christ has won in His death and resurrection and His ascension to your right hand. Help us to grasp the fullness of life that He now has and offers to His, to his children. Help us to grasp that our life is hid with Christ in God. And that when he appears, our life will appear with him in glory. Help us to long for that day when the fullness of Jubilee will come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.